So we're going to start now with uh, Acts 9, verses 1 to 30. And we remember when we talked about Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, it's a book about all the events of the, the church growing, um, expanding. It was a brand new thing with Jesus' death and resurrection, um, fulfillment of the scriptures. But it's more or less also a book about the, what the Holy Spirit is doing through the apostles. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit, a, a record of what the Holy Spirit was doing. In this chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, it's probably one of the most important passages in the Acts because it's talking about the power of God to transform a life. Now, God could just wipe everybody off and start new. But for those of you who have ever remodeled a house... You could scrape it down and build new. That's easier. But to get in there and to remodel it and to make it new and improved is a lot more work, isn't it? So God just didn't annihilate all of us. He's taking us and making new creatures out of us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that does this transforming work. And it's initiated by God. As we go through this chapter and look at Saul... And what he was all about, not just here in 9, but it's also mentioned, his his conversion is mentioned in chapters 22 and 26. So we're going to pull some pieces out of there also to give us a better understanding of Saul's conversion. Based on that, this isn't a very long book. And to put that kind of emphasis on a man's conversion This is a watershed experience that happened with him. It is something that we really need to pay attention to and see this is how God works. This is how God calls someone. This is what he does, and this is how he works. And so with that in mind and realizing there are two types of people in the world, those who are believers in Jesus Christ and have a new heart, a new creature in him, and will spend eternity in heaven in the kingdom of God, and those who aren't, who are lost and remain lost, and they will spend eternity separated from God. That's it. Two types of people, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor free, none of that matters, believer or non-believer. So there's two different ways. There's the way to Jesus Christ, the way of life through him, new life through him, or there's the other way that's going in the complete opposite direction that is a rejection of God and truth and all he stands for. So we start with chapter 9, and we're seeing that Paul Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Breathing threats and murder. Now that's a strong phrase to say. He was filled with rage, hate. He had murder on his mind to do everything he could to eliminate this whole Christian, these followers of Jesus. Um, it was just, he, uh, he was out to destroy it. And he went to the high priest and he got letters, permission to go into the synagogues to find them and flush them out, the people that belong to the way. 
and to bind, bind them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just Saul, but the other religious re- leaders were behind this movement also to destroy Christianity. The way, the way, the following of Jesus, the, the um, believing in him as the son of God and died for our sins, the Messiah, those people that followed Christ, were, it was, the movement was called the way. And it wasn't just an opinion, it wasn't a belief, it was a way of living your life. It was peaceful, loving, community of believers, harmony, living in joy. And it's the only way to God. There's not all paths lead to God. That's a lie. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. That's it. That is the way. So Paul was, Saul was just bound and determined to annihilate these people. And so we see in verse 3, you know, he was on his way. As Saul was on his way, which is not the way, He's out breathing these murderous threats and hate toward the followers of Christ. He was a highly educated man, but he was absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that he was right. There was no bending it. It wasn't like, oh, I got presented with this and this, and I think I'll take this one. No, he, through his core, believed that he had the, the, the only truth that was there and what they were talking, talking about, Jesus being the son of God raised from the dead, was just blasphemous. He was a, a rabbi who believed that this Christianity was deceptive and it was leading people away from the truth. The Jews believed in a monotheistic religion, which is God is one. There's only one God. And so for Jesus to be God also, that meant that it was polytheistic, and that was blasphemous, so it can't be. Jesus cannot be God. And more deception from that was that he raised from the dead. There's no way. So he, these, based on these two points, he was going to destroy this deception that Christianity was spreading. He was angry, he was violent, and he was expanding his quest to destroy Christianity by moving north to Damascus, about 130 miles northeast to Damascus. While he was heading north, where's where's Christianity spreading? We already know that the Ethiopian was taking it south to Ethiopia, and we know that Philip was transformed west in that area. So this is going like wildfire all around and everything. It's, it's out of control. But this one man was just set on destroying it. So, while Saul was on his way, God stops him in his tracks. Verse 3, when he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This wasn't just a flashlight or a strobe light or we know from the other two accounts in chapters 22 and 26 that it was a supernatural light. It was more brilliant than the sun at high noon. It was, you couldn't explain it. It was surreal. Um, and, And everyone who was with Saul 
apparently saw this. It was no question, it was a supernatural occurrence that happened. But what it really was was the blazing glory of Jesus Christ right there, right stopping him in his foot tra- footprints all the way around him. He was surrounded by the glory of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, I believe that he started to realize that who it really was. In Acts twenty six fourteen, it says that um, at midday, 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kicking against the goads here. So he was a man who was bothered by a Christianity. He, he was out to get it and destroy it because it was going against everything that he believed. And yet, so he was frustrated from within. And Christ knew he had this, was bothered in his conscience. Maybe from Stephen's testimony. He was there giving his approval of it. Watching Stephen go through Israel history, not a learned man. Stephen was Hellenistic. He wasn't a, a you know, rabbi that were, Saul went to school. How did he know all this stuff? And laid out history perfectly with this joy on his face, with this peace on his face. And, and to face death and cling to a deceptive belief to, to death. This really troubled Saul in his testimony. How could he hang on to that even to the moment of truth or, or to, of death? So he witnessed Saul, uh, Stephen dying, and he witnessed what he said at the end to forgive these people. And this stuff really, really got under his skin. This bothered him. He was frustrated by all of this stuff. He was out to destroy it because he was tormented inside. That's what pushing against the goad, an instrument to use with a pointy stick with a point on the end to get animals to, you know, go, get going, get going. It's like, and you kick against it and get out of here. Well, it's futile to kick against the goad. You only get hurt when you kick against the goad. And so Jesus is saying to him, why it is futile what you're doing here. It's a futile thing to fight against me. I'm going to win you. You're mine. You're mine. So we see that he asked him, why are you persecuting me? Back into chapter 9. And he says, who are you, Lord? The fact that he uses that word Lord tells us that he knows who this is. Either by fear or by faith, who knows? But he had a humbled heart at that point. And when Jesus said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. At this moment in time, I believe that Saul has evidence right there that this really is Jesus and he really did rise from the dead. This was utterly a revolutionary moment to take someone who was so adamant adamant against it, and then to be in the presence of, of the calling of Jesus Christ, Almighty God, you cannot refuse it. 
So, his worst nightmare was revealed. Christianity was true. It's true. He had no other choice but to submit and say, what do you want with me? Now, could he have continued to reject it? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism. You can have that debate, you know, like everyone's been debating. Personally, from this here, I believe that you don't. When Jesus calls you, when God calls you, it's like you may, you may kick against the goad for a while. I remember I did. I'm not going up. I'm not going up. I'm not going up. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. He eventually wins out. Um, so he submits to him, what do you want with me? It reflects submission and a determined obedience. At this moment, Saul's surrender was complete. It was revealed to him that God was Jesus Christ. They were one. It was true. So he asks him, tells him to go to Damascus. But this time when he was on his way to Damascus, he was going to enter the city in very different terms than he had anticipated. He was going to go in there and just arrest all these, these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem and you know, sentence them or whatever he was going to do with them. But he's going in now, being led by the hand, humbled, um, and submission, and with a total change of frame of mind with this. The people that was traveling with Saul, they couldn't, they were perplexed. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Blind, they took him by the hand and they carried him back. He just wondered what happened to that caravan that was w- walking with him. If they were believers at that time too, the impact that they had with that by, by seeing the light but not being able to comprehend what happened. But they also saw, probably the most miraculous thing, was the change they saw in the man Saul himself. Because to take someone that's breathing threats and murder, you know what kind of contorted face that would be? Versus a, whoa, I just saw the presence of God, and I'm just humbled. The softening of that was probably incomprehensible also. So we see here that he gets led back in, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. For three days, fasting and praying and and just grappling with what just happened and just you know when something like that happens you just play it over and over in your head like whoa what happened and did you guys see that you were there did you see what happened there yeah ooh, and they're all kind of processing it and everything and um at least he could speak he just couldn't hear It'd be frustrating if he was you know like Zachariah and couldn't talk, but so he was able to process this and pray about it and comprehend it and just weigh it in his head and, and reflect back on Old Testament scriptures and just realize that, wow, this is making sense now. He was deeply thinking about what had happened, and for the first time, um, he prays. He really prays. God's power to transform is powerful and it's initiated by God. A man cannot, person cannot be transformed without the power of God. There's no way. We can change our look, we can change our, you know, style, we can change our friends, we can change a lot of things where we live, we can change the way we talk, but to be transformed 
a heart, that's the power of God. So verse 10, another follower of Christ comes on away, another person in the way. Ananias. Now, Ananias isn't the apostle. He's just a follower of Jesus. And we see the faithfulness of Ananias with this. In chapter 22 of Acts, verse 12, we read that he was a devout man according to the law. And he was well thought of amongst his peers. Ananias would have been one of the targets Saul had when he got there if he hadn't been converted. He maybe would have been one of the first ones he zeroed in on and bound him up and drug him back. So Ananias knew about Saul, knew about his reputation. Um, But God, the Lord talks to Ananias in a vision and says to him, Ananias, here I am, Lord, servant. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And he's going to tell him things. I'm not going to read that for sake of time. But it was very detailed what he told him to do. Specific. So he would know clarity on what his mission was. I'm to do this is a street and this is the house and this is a person I'm going to see and this is what what I'm supposed to do. He got his marching orders clear and precise. And they had to be that way because what God was asking Ananias to do was a pretty risky thing. And, and, it, 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 and that went against his thinking, too. What do you mean you want me to go to this Saul character? What do you mean he's a believer now? You want me to touch him? You want me to help him? But Ananias was a follower of Christ. And even though everything was telling him up to this point that Saul was the great persecutor and probably the number one enemy of the church... But God also told, or Jesus also, the Holy Spirit, God told Ananias also that he had given Saul a vision of him coming also. So there were two visions out there, one given to Saul and one given to Ananias. And these two visions communicated to God, from God, were going to pull these two people together in healing. So Ananias, okay, he's already had a transformed life. And a transformed life in Christ reflects obedience to serve him. If God said Saul was converted, then Ananias was willing to believe it. So he went. He went and he entered the house and he calls him Brother Saul. Whoa, what a... That was huge. Brother Saul, already connecting with him. God has told me to come and he tells him about the vision that he had. And he lays his hands on him, and his sight is restored. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, another instance in the early church where they were blasting out into a new area. He got the Holy Spirit probably on when he saw the light. When he saw the light, he got the Holy Spirit. But this, again, was an an affirmation in the early days of the church and for those other disciples there that this was the work of God. This was part of the body of Christ. This was part of, of, of the body of Christ. I can't even say it any better than that. So he has a mission now. Paul's, Saul's mission um, that God had planned for him before the beginning of time. And the things that Saul gave up, you know it had to be from God because Saul was like, you know, the perfect Pharisee, 
He was smart. He was ahead of his time. He was making a name for himself in Judaism, in Jerusalem. I mean, he was probably had wealth with that. He was leaving what was considered a very privileged life to embrace a call with much suffering. We know from that famous verse and passage in Philippians 3, 4, um, that he had such confidence in the flesh. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. You know what that word actually means, loss? I can tell you guys, there's no boys in here. Rubbish, it actually means a used menstrual pad. I mean, it's the bottom of the barrel here. That's like really bad rubbish. I count it, but loss because of the, but to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He just threw it all away. It had nothing to him. It wasn't even a hard thing to do for him because he realized his great calling that God had on his life now and who Jesus was and the, and the important work of what that was. So he was called away from all that to give all that up. It says in our passage here that he immediately went to be baptized. He wanted to identify with Jesus through baptism. And he had something to eat. Rose was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So this group of believers in Ananias' little world there in Damascus, other followers who probably maybe even witnessed his eyesight coming back and, and the miraculous filling of the Holy Spirit and seeing him baptized were like dumbfounded, thinking, whoa, whoa, is this really going on? You know, what an eyewitness to the account of that. And they sat down and had fellowship together, transforming work of God. Only the power of God can take someone so dead, set in their ways, such a hardened heart, he takes the f- your heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. And he will be my chosen instrument. This is another important thing to point out for people who just are looking at careers and think, oh man, I think I'll go, in- I'll go into the ministry. That's an option that I have. It's not that simple. You've got to be called to go into the ministry. You've got to be called to do that because those men who are called to that kind of high, above reproach work have, have got to have the, the, the power of God in their lives to be able to do that. They're held to a higher calling, a higher standard, and it's just not a something, it's just not, oh, it's one of the options there are. I'll just sign up for seminary and go. A called, a chosen instrument called of God. Well, let's move on here. He gets refreshed. He's baptized. Now, there's a time element here in this next part that kind of gets confusing for us. So let me see if I can't wade through it with you. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This would have been blasphemy from him. He would have considered that blasphemous if he had said that any time before he went in there to Damascus. So he was with them for a while, spending time with those disciples there in Damascus. He was very intelligent, but still very young in his faith. So he probably reflected back on all the Old Testament teachings that he had in rabbinical school, and just the light bulb clicked on like, whoa, they're talking about the Messiah there. And in Isaiah, that was, that was Jesus. That was the Messiah. Oh, my. And there and there. Oh, my, oh my gosh. And look at that. He must have been totally overwhelmed. And as he would verbally talk about this and reveal this stuff to the people that he was with, they were all dumbfounded and amazed also. The hearers, the people that were there watching this, it was hard to believe. They were baffled. How could somebody like this, that was outright the number one enemy of the church, now all of a sudden be doing this? There was no explanation for this but the power of God. And because of that, they were amazed, they were perplexed, But Saul increased, in verse 22, all the more in strength and confounded these Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He took the Jewish knowledge, the Hebrew writings, and he took those and he presented it, this is Jesus. And he broke open scripture like probably had never been broken open before. Proving, the word says proving that Jesus was the Christ. Not just his message, but the messenger was proving it too. Because if you're not walking the walk, your message isn't very good. But here was this Saul. Are you sure this is Saul? Yeah, that's Saul. That's him. Well, he was an expert in the Old Testament. And so he could now easily see how Jesus was the promised Messiah. So with ease and with confidence, he opened up scriptures to others. You know, you cannot, you cannot teach unless you've learned it yourselves. <laughs> and I remember when back, I guess 16 years ago, when this class here, the Community Bible Study class of Briscoe, was looking for a, a new teaching director because the other one was stepping down. And, and I had been a teaching director in California for five years, and I thought, well, uh, I don't really want the job because I know what it entails. <laughs> but I waited out, and I, and I just knew that God was, yeah, laying it on my heart. And so I went to um, the teaching director at the time, Sarah Runyon, and I said, did you find a teaching director yet? No. You, you want it? I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess I had to say yes. But I knew what it would entail because... In order to learn the stuff that's in here, you got to go through it. And I knew my life would be broken open. And it has been. It's been broken open. But you learn these things, and you learn who God is, and you learn who he is that carries you through these times. And with confidence, I can tell you that the Jesus in this Bible is real. So Paul or Saul, was at a point where he was with confidence breaking open Scripture because he knew it all. Now, it says in between verses 22 and 23, 
uh, 23 says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Between 22 and 23, there's probably a time lapse of three years. Okay, Galatians tells us that he went to Arabia for three years, almost a seminary training down there. Galatians 1, which Paul wrote, verses 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught to me, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about being probably taught one-on-one with Jesus himself during those three years. Philip broke open scripture for the Ethiopian. That Ethiopian was taught the gospel through Philip. Paul is saying here that he was not taught by man, but, but by Jesus Christ. He received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, it goes on to say, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, now I persecuted the, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for, I, for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, that's predestination right there, God set him apart before he was born, and who called me by grace, There was nothing in Saul worthy of saving. Was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cyphus, which is Peter, the apostle, and remained with him for 15 days. So he stayed with Peter for two weeks, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then I went on to Syria and and Sicilia. So he spent some time with Peter, which was really good, and he spent some time with James, one of Jesus' brothers, which was funny. He got some of those childhood stories and everything kind of out of the way. He got more rounded idea of what it was like with Jesus and growing up with Jesus and stuff. But he's letting us know that he got his, his revelations from Christ himself. This made him an apostle, okay? Because he was with Jesus, um, and he lived during the time when Jesus lived and rose Okay, died and rose again, and he was, had the teachings of Jesus. So we have the, the, the 12 apostles, you know, but then Paul was also one too because of this account. All right, that's in Galatians 1. You can check that out later if you want to. So he's boldly preaching and teaching about Christ, and the Jews plotted to kill him. And their plot became known. So he was lowered down through the, over the wall because all the gates were guarded. And what a humbled, humiliating way to leave a city. He gets led in by the blind, blind, and he gets lowered down through a basket. But this was going to be the new norm for, for Paul. After he's lowered down, in verse 26... He decides to go back to Jerusalem. That's where the apostles were hanging out, remember? The church had scattered, but the apostles were still there. 
And he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. How could this be? He was a mass maniac, murderer, ugly, vicious, hated. I mean, he was the number one enemy. How? There's just no way. There's just no way that this could have happened. But in verse 7, we have a but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and to declare to them how the events had all happened and how he was boldly preaching in the name of Jesus. Barnabas goes, and he's the bridge between the apostles and, and, and Saul, saying, you guys, you have it all wrong. You really have it all wrong. And I would like to think that God's Spirit helped the apostles. They prayed about it. They were able to really, okay, well, maybe there's something to this. We don't understand how much God really influences the way we think and stuff. Really, the grace, the mercy of God. How, how many times he stops us from doing something stupid. How many times he puts a roadblock when we're headed down in the flesh and, and crazy and he pulls us back, Molly, don't go there, you don't need to think about that. If we had spiritual eyes and saw the, the angelic messengers that protect us all the time, I think we would be amazed. His work in our lives is something that is phenomenal. And we go through day to day without even acknowledging him sometime. It's all about him. So he attempts to join with the apostles, and it didn't go very well. They kind of said, okay, he went among them, and they were pretty much okay. But again, you know, um, aside from Peter and Brother James, the brother of Jesus, there wasn't a whole lot of camaraderie with that, which must have broke his heart. He wasn't wanted in the old Pharisee realm. They hated him. He wasn't wanted with the Christians, the followers, because they were very skeptical of him. So he was kind of in this no-man's zone. It's hard to forgive someone who has persecuted you, isn't it? That word forgiveness is really hard. And I have a minute here, so I'm just going to tell you one thing about forgiveness. I use this a lot in my practice. I believe forgiveness is a supernatural, divine ability. I do not believe, this is my personal opinion, that a non-believer can truly forgive somebody. They can say the words, but they really can't. And the reason being is this, they have never experienced it themselves the true forgiveness of God for the things they've got. I mean, they have maybe done something wrong, steal or something, and their mother says, okay, well, I forgive you. But the deep-rooted God forgives us and, and recognition of what a wretched person we are, and yet God forgives us. That's an experience, and that's a, a, a puts us into that new creature mode, a new being in Christ, gives us the ability to forgive because he's forgiven us. And so when we have a hard time forgiving somebody who has persecuted us or wronged us, that's sin for us because we're commanded to do it. And where that scripture says, if you don't, Jesus says, if you don't forgive them, then I can't forgive you, does not mean that we're just erase your name from the book of life. It means that we're sinning and God's just not going to overlook that until you come, come to grips and forgive that person and it becomes a freeing thing for us, too. I've had people in my life where it's just no way in the world I'm going to forgive them, no way. 
And so I've had to say to God, I don't even want to forgive them, but I want to make it right with you. Help me get to the point where I want to forgive them. I have to start there and just open up that conversation with God because I don't want to be a sinner with this and you're commanding us to forgive. So they were having a hard, they were having some lessons on forgiveness here to be able to forgive Saul who had persecuted them. And Saul was growing in his faith too as he was going through these trials of people who he desperately wanted to be a part with and, and, and pour out the love of God and it wasn't being received. When he gets here, the last point here in verse 28, when he gets into Jerusalem and he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, and it's interesting that he was doing this. Remember the Hellenists and the Hebrews? They were that, the widows were kind of like, they didn't like each other, remember, too much, okay? Um, and so, and Stephen was a Hellenist. One commentary writer said that it could have been that he was working with the Hellenists and wanting to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ to kind of pick up the mantle that Stephen had left because he was a Hellenist. But what did they do? They were seeking to kill him, and he gets away from that too. He escapes. The new norm for Paul was being pretty hated. A transformation like this is only done from God. There are people you may know in life that get transformed like that. I have maybe some current examples. I don't know if you're old enough. The Episcopal Bishop James Pike. Does that name ring a bell to everybody? James Pike. I won't use that one then. You'll know this one. Madeline Murray O'Hara, O'Hare, oh, the atheist who took prayer out of the public schools. You know that name. She's credited with that. She's a well-known atheist who got prayer and Bible reading out of our public schools through a court case. And not long ago, her son, who was raised on her angry hate toward Christianity, found Jesus Christ as his savior and wrote a book about it confessing the errors of his, of his earlier days. And then this is more recent one. Chuck Colson from the Nixon um, administration. I'm going to read this quote. He was a shrewd, ruthless politician. He was part of the Rick, Richard Nixon's White House staff and was so committed to Nixon that he said he would walk over the body of his grandmother if it would mean getting his boss reelected. Colson spent time in prison as a consequence of his part in Watergate, Yet God reached and transformed him, and he is now working in the prisons of the world to help those who, um, like him, are, are prisoners. His testimony is that when he was successful, his success accomplished nothing. It was in his great humiliation when he was actually sent to jail for his Watergate offenses that God used him. So there's a lot of stories out there. You may even have personal ones in your family or something that you know that, you know, a hard core, hatred, drug-addicted person that, that finds Jesus. Um, and we don't know. We don't know who God's going to call. That's why we're told to go out and preach the gospel every place. 
because we don't know. It's not up to us to pick and choose and say, I'm not going to share Jesus with him because there's no way in the world that person's going to bend the knee to Jesus. But you don't know. You just never know. And for those of us who have loved ones who are in that category of there's no way it's going to happen, don't give up hope because you don't know. You don't know what God is going to do. God, we thank you for this the life of Saul. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is so powerful. Forgive us for not truly uh, even attempting to understand um, and honor your spirit the way we should. Open our eyes. Help us to grasp how you want to use us in these last days. To you be the glory. Amen.